Welcome to Pioneers, the show where we explore the intersection between humanity and AI. I'm your host, Ankur Patel. Over the last 10 years, I've built three AI startups, written two books about the subject, and I run a weekly AI newsletter. I also regularly teach and speak about the topic at conferences. This technology has grown faster than I think any of us could have imagined, and it's making us ask really important questions, such as how ethical is AI? What will this technology look like in a few years, let alone a few months? And most importantly, does it have the power to truly change the world? And what does it mean for you? On this show, I'll be interviewing the founders, operators, and pioneers that are introducing AI into their companies and industries. We'll be asking them the really heavy hitting questions that make them dig deep into the core of what we do. And without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Today, I want to welcome Wayne Butterfield to the podcast. He's a partner at ISG. Welcome to the show, Wayne. Thank God. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Great to, uh, to be on. I really look forward to today's discussion. We'd love to hear your journey because you have had an incredible run over the last few decades. Um, you've done automation for a very long time, which I know is a very hot topic nowadays. Could you just walk us through your background and how you got to your current role at ISG? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting route. Okay. So, um, I left school when I was 16 and went straight to work, um, and had various, various jobs. I worked in the legal industry. I worked in the insurance industry and I, I ended up when I was about 18 working in the telco industry, um, and, uh, in, in customer service. And I, I realized that this was an area that I had, a um, I liked experience. I liked, I learned process and I started working with technology. Anyway, lo- long story short, I had um, a great mentor and, uh, and, and boss who took me under his wing uh, and we rose through the ranks of, uh, of, of O2, Telefonica O2 in the UK. And I ended up um, being able to experiment with some technologies very early on in the reduction curve. Uh, and if I think about robotic process automation back in 2010 and uh, chatbots, we'll call them chatbots as opposed to conversational AI back in 2011, 2012, um, uh, then started at things like social customer service and uh, digital transformation. I ran our transformation arm, um, contact strategies, things like that. Um, and so I developed this newfound appreciation for how technology could solve business problems. Um, and so in 2016, I went and replicated a lot of what I'd done at O2 in, in BT. So again, things like automation, chatbots, digital customer service. And in 2016, I joined ISG as a, originally as a director and I headed up our automation practice. Uh, and, uh, and I became partner, uh, as well as moving over to the U S in 2021. Um, so, you know, AI and automation have been, I guess, part of my career now for the last kind of 12, 13 years. So I like to tell people I was doing AI before it was cool, uh, which is probably only within the last 12 months, as you would know, Ankur, it's, um, is that it's, I have a lot more conversations now. In fact, I've had more conversations with the general public. And I class my friends and family as the general public in the last three months than I'd had in the previous 30 years. <laughs> yeah. 
Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's become mainstream, um, you know, thanks largely to players like OpenAI with ChatGPT and getting that into consumers' hands. But this um, this technology in various forms, like machine learning, uh, you know, if you look at that as a technology, it's been around a long time. And I think the term automation has been around for, for even longer, um, even in, in enterprise, right, in the business community. Why don't we start a little bit with defining uh, the path to automation and where we are today? So RPA, you refer to it. Can we just unpack that for, for our, our viewers, you know, what mm-hmm. that is? Um, and then I think most importantly, um, how effective it's been. So in other mm-hmm. words, uh, where has it been really great? And then what open problems has RPA not been able to address that perhaps uh, AI and some of the latest technologies are better equipped to address? Mm-hmm. Great set of questions. Okay, so let me let me first start with the definition. I would deem, so, so um, if we go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, efficiency improvements were uh, certainly early on were mainly geared towards changing and improving process. And then we start getting things like the PC and early softwares like Excel, et cetera. Again, they change the way people work and we gain more efficiency. But there's only so much that traditional software and process improvement can get us. Um, and the business yearns for efficiency, right? It yearns for it. Why? Because the more efficient we are, the cheaper we are, and the cheaper we are, uh, the more uh, profit we're, we're likely to be able to make, which allows us to reinvest and grow, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So we've been on a journey, we've been on this journey in, 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 in and around business process, what, for 50 odd years now. And automation is the latest wave of us being able to continue to drive efficiency. So we've got the softwares, we've, we've had the process, and now we have technology that's working with people in our processes alongside our software to drive that next wave. Now, the, the, the biggest challenges I see it, going back to, you, uh, to, to your point, was we designed work with the greatest computer right in the center of it, the human brain, right? We are, as people, excellent problem solvers. Uh, we can join dots with our, you know, with our real world models, right? Where we don't, we just know, we have intuition. We can have experiences both in process, out of process, where we just know, well, when this doesn't work, I just do this. We also have an ability to communicate with each other to say, you know, I'm caught. I don't know how to do this one, do you? Yeah, of course I do. So we have collaboration. So we have all of these things where we've designed work, but we built, we designed it with people in the middle. And so we now, are looking at these technologies to automate work and we're like ah like what we said we did versus what we do well they're not the same and i always think if you can't if you can't explain it if you can't document it then you can't automate it is is like a general rule of thumb that i would have a lot of work either is documented but documented poorly we don't know brilliantly how to explain it and most people who do it work on autopilot it's like, yeah, I made this really complex decision. I did it in less than a second. I don't really know why I made it, but I just know it's the right thing to do. Great experience. Like we, we haven't found a great way of documenting experience, right? So all of these things are reasons why tools like RPA have found some use, 
but have not transformed the way that we work. Like we're still very much in the center. As people, we're still very much in the center of work. Um, and so what we have done though, is we figured out that there are certain types of work and I call them handwork and headwork. Um, handwork is when we're basically using our mouse, mm-hmm. making a few clicks, pointing at some stuff and doing quite transactional work. Now it's transactional, you might call it swivel chair, simplistic work. I mean, the, the, the main efficiency we tried to find with that type of work was mess for less, right? Outsourcing. Mm-hmm. If you think about the type of activity that we deem to be appropriate for outsourcing, it's the same stuff that we were able to document, write work instructions for, and then train it to somebody. Well, if you can do those three things to a person, you probably can do it to an automation. So, you know, we deem stuff to be applicable for outsourcing. That same, that same work activity is the stuff that we have at least tried to outsource uh, to automate in the, in the main. Um, now, that was kind of with RPA. Um, the thing that has kept me interested in this industry now for you know well over a decade is that every time we you know we have this umbrella term automation and, and it nitpicks at certain aspects of work, but the tools keep changing, the capabilities yeah. of those tools keeps improving, and suddenly the complexity of the work that we are completing. Um, that is deemed appropriate for automation keeps increasing. And so um, I, I like to think that we're never done, right? We never, we haven't ever reached the end of the, of the line yet. So just when you think that technology has, has, has reached a bit of an impasse, that the types of activities we're going to be able to automate, uh, they've hit a ceiling, you then have things like OpenAI come out and, and not kind of out of the box, but the whole large language model, foundational models, mm-hmm. uh, ability to automate tasks um, and, and replicate uh, knowledge, creativity and experience almost at the touch of a button has just for me and my clients opened up this whole new Pandora's box uh-huh. of what can now be deemed as automatable. And I'll be honest, 18 months ago, there are jobs and roles that I would have deemed too difficult to automate because they weren't if then or else type roles. And if they were, they were the most complex decision trees you're ever likely to see. And guess what? It's too complex to document. And if it's too complex to document, you ain't automating it. So a bit of a long answer to a brilliant question, but I think hopefully that kind of gives you and the audience like a, a little glimpse into um, where we're maneuvering to. I think that's a great uh, rundown. I think um, you uh, were able to distill how automation is done, which is can you bring enough context to um, these automation technology and context is in the form of documentation. So how should the process be done? Prior experience, which is highly relevant, which may not be captured well. Um, and then it's also um, uh, the ability to collaborate. Can you bring others where there are gaps in your own knowledge or in the documentation so that they can kind of shed light there? And I think um, that's very complex. That's hard. That requires human level reasoning and understanding. And I think RPA, uh, you know, as, you, as you mentioned, was able to accomplish some uh, automation, but it had to be very well documented for the most part in order for RPA to go and really tackle it. 
And then I think now with large language models, given where they are, you can use, um, you can have slightly more ambiguity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the large language model is able to do a little bit more reasoning understanding. So um, with the same amount of documentation, even large language models are just more proficient at automating at least more of what, uh, what people are doing. And I think it's opened up more of the market um, for this technology to go in and introduce greater levels of automation as this technology gets better and better. I think more channels of automation um, open up. But I think um, I 100% agree with you that automation is a never-ending journey. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the things that I struggle with clients is what do you actually choose to automate versus what do you actually just leave to people because you don't have the volume or you don't have the right documentation or it's just too complex and AI is not able to tackle it. I'm, I'm curious. So maybe let's uh, talk a little bit about ISG and the clientele that you serve. Um, and then uh, what would be really interesting to, um, to work through is you know, what types of things are they looking to automate and how do you frame it appropriately to them? Because I imagine that, you know, despite them being aware of open AI, they may not know what they should actually go and automate versus what they should just leave to people to do. Yeah, great question. So, um, so, so ISG, we're a um, technology advisory and research firm. Uh, we serve 75 of the top of the Fortune 100 um, have about 900 current clients uh, globally. Many of the brands that you would think could or should be clients will be will be clients. Um, we're a global organization. I'm based in Dallas, Texas now, uh, despite the accent. Um, so an American an American based firm, uh, and that's probably where uh, probably 50 odd or over 50 percent of our revenues uh, would would stem from. Um, with regards to clients and, and the, the types of questions and, um, and, and problems, I guess, that they, that they have uh, and, and how that it, you know, uh, is linked to, let's say, large language models and, um, and this new wave of automation technology, it's, I've heard this described in many different ways. I'm not sure how appropriate most of them actually are, but let's say everyone's talking about it. Um, and we, as part of our research, uh, one of the things that we've done fairly recently is complete an extensive study with the uh, service providers, service integrators and, and clients to understand, okay, we know everyone's talking about it. What are they specifically asking for? What are the problems that they're trying to get solved, right? Not what do you think they want, but actually what are the things that you're being asked to automate uh, and so as much as ISG is being asked, we also found over 400 uh, individual user cases from our service provider community where end clients far beyond those and the reach of ISG are also asking. And what we found was that there are a, uh, a number of different industries where we find uh, more, uh, more opportunity Within those industries, there's a number of different departments. Um, and, and so there's a couple of, of, of snippets here. Some of them will not be, some of them will, will be a surprise. Some of them probably won't be. Um, so financial services, including insurance is right up there, right? For those who believe that they have a need and or potential use of generative AI. Interesting. Kind of expected. What I didn't expect, expect was that the second biggest, um, let's say a demand generator is the manufacturing space, mm -hmm. um, which again, I didn't, 
you know, if you think about OpenAI, you're probably like, yeah, don't get my manufacturing wood. But if you start to think about product development uh, and you think about some of the other capabilities within generative AI and you start to think about, you know, designing products, marketing, sales, et cetera, then maybe manufacturing does have a need for generative AI where it may not necessarily have a big need for an open AI model. Um, Department-wise, again, I don't think there should be any um, any uh, surprises here. The two big departments for customer support and marketing. Um, and uh, what I expected to see but didn't would be that there would be a significant demand for IT, uh, certainly in and around code, code generation, um, code quality, uh, code refactoring, etc. There wasn't. There was very little there. Um, which I was surprised at. Um, okay, so that, that's kind of the research, right? Now, interestingly, out of the 400 plus user cases, there was less than 10 that were in production generating some form of ROI. So if that gives the listeners any comfort, everyone's talking about it, everyone's asking for stuff to happen, everyone's investigating it, but very few are actually getting any real value out of it right now. That study was completed about three and a half months ago. So it is, you know, as research goes, incredibly recent. Now, as far as research in generative AI goes, three and a half months may as well be three and a half years for most other technologies. But, um, you know, without having to complete this study once every month, I think we're, we're always going to be slightly lagging behind where we are right now. But, you know, that three and a half months ago was still in H2 of this year. Uh, it was still... A, a good kind of 18-ish months, um, you know, since most people have been in and around generative AI. And so I feel like it's still a decent yardstick. It might not necessarily be, you know, I would like to think that there are more user cases live now than what they were. Now, as for clients, I think there there's, there's a big distinction uh, and a clouding of understanding between AI which, you know, you will know yourself, multiple CEO, founder, you know, expert in this and being around the houses, AI is not, hasn't just been around for the last 18 months. So we have AI and then we have generative AI. And, and I see the, what people are asking for to be like a mishmash of, you know, prediction models using past data. Like mm -hmm. we've been doing that for nearly 20 years, guys. Like that's, that's not something you need generative AI for. Yeah. Um, and so there's this, you know, what people are asking for versus um, what is what we might call traditional AI and generative AI. I think there's this big gray area where people just don't get the difference between them both from the uninitiated. Um, so that's number one. What I'm telling people though, and this is what I'm on the lookout for now, you mentioned around documentation. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely blown away by foundation large language models and RAG, retrieval augmented generation, mm -hmm. putting those two things together in complex environments where there is a significant body of generally written documentation that can be utilized in incredibly quick timeframes to create specific expertise on given subjects. And I am absolutely blown away by how much of an expert, an autonomous agent, if that's the term I, I like to use, can be 
on a given subject when we have a good body of information in the background. No longer do we have OpenAI's mansplaining of every topic, but suddenly we have college graduate-esque ability to answer random questions where most people themselves have zero idea of what the answer is in a not only coherent fashion, but a highly accurate and professional manner that has people questioning how, you know, how on earth is this even possible? And the best thing about it is we're doing it in days, not weeks or months. Um, and that's both got me excited as somebody who's been in and around this space for well over a decade, right? I'm like, I, I feel like a kid in a, in a, in a kid shop, in a uh, sweet shop. Why? To your very first point, like RPA, it's, it's, it has a ceiling. This ceiling's down here. Um, other forms of technology, you know, are building incrementally on this. But the reality is where we need to be getting to to automate large proportions of work is up here. And suddenly we took an elevator up. We didn't just, you know, take a step. We took an elevator up. And it's the type of work that I would have deemed too difficult to automate yet, you know, maybe 12 months ago. We're able to do this type of stuff in days now. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And the worst thing is, it's the worst it's ever going to be, mm-hmm. right? And innovation is as slow as it's ever going to be, right? Innovation will never be as slow as it is today. And it's already a rocket ship. So, you know, this is why even, you know, someone who's been in and around this space for over a decade and incrementally building and building all of this experience and all of these, these user cases and working with all of these clients, I'm like, we're not done, guys. We are still just scratching the surface. Um, and, you know, the, the autonomous enterprise of the future is probably something that is more in our grasp now than it ever has been, you know, in the, even in the past five and 10 years. So, again, another long answer, but um, this is kind of how I think about the world of work, where we're going with technology. And, and, and again, as you can hear in my voice and see in my face, something I'm incredibly enthusiastic, but also realistic about, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Wayne, I think one of the things that I notice is a lot of newcomers in this space, maybe people that are, um, you know, frankly, just younger or they've just discovered Gen AI in the last 12 months or so. They tend to be very starry eyed, super optimistic. They think everything is possible under the sun. And um, and I think that uh, hearing the enthusiasm in your voice, given how much experience you have, is is uh, is if frankly, it's um, it feels good that th- mm-hmm. that even though there that some people might be too optimistic, there is really clear intent. Uh, there's really clear reason to be optimistic, even while appreciating that this can't solve everything, right? Because mm-hmm. the things that it can solve are pretty incredible. As you said earlier, it's opened up the variety of use cases that um, this technology is able to, to do, right? So previously, it was a smaller set of work. Now it's expanded that, that set by quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And then the other important thing is that it's reduced the time to impact. So instead of taking very lengthy cycles, need to, needing a lot and a lot of data, right? When you talk about classical ML, um, generative AI is is you need basically an order of magnitude, several orders of magnitude less data to, to get to really good levels of performance. So you get an ROI a lot faster. Um, I think uh, one thing that you mentioned that's very, very interesting is that the more common use cases that we see for Gen AI are around marketing and customer support. And that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, I think 
helping uh, programmers uh, write code, that also makes sense. All of them are generating code um, or text um, to help people in their roles. What about use of generative AI in something that is maybe um, has a little bit more impact in the everyday lives of individuals? So I'll give you a couple of examples. And this is also drawing from experience at multimodal underwriting processes, KYB, KYC and KYB processes, claims processing for insurance or healthcare, where generative AI is now doing a portion of, of a loan officer's job or a claims adjuster's role. And um, in some cases, it may, may actually make a decision all, all on its own with enough context. And that's actually impacting people's lives, right? In a really tangible manner. It's, you know, whether they got their mortgage application approved or not, whether they got a healthcare claim approved or not, um, those are real impactful decisions. What do you think about uh, the responsibility of companies in making sure that generative AI is used responsibly without, as, you know, without bias as much as possible in making those decisions? And then what role does government uh, regulators, what role do they play in making sure that there are adequate controls in place? Mm -hmm. Superb questions. Um, I'm um, so one of one of the things that I'm doing now is working with a number of, uh, of, of government states in the U.S. help um, create policies, procedures, frameworks, assessments in order to ensure the safe and secure uh, usage of AI and generative AI uh, within within local government. So um, this this kind of whole area is def definitely something that I have engrossed myself in uh, more more recently. Uh, clearly, it wasn't something I was doing when I was still living in the UK. Um, you know, with regards to the to the US local governments. Um, so, but your 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 initial question was around uh, user cases. L let me tell you what I recommend to my clients right now. Let's not let an AI make make a decision for us. Let's augment the way that we work and arrive at a uh, summary of um, summary of a decision using AI, but let's still use people to make those final decisions. And the reason why I think that's really uh, needed uh, right now is number one, because it's the safest thing to do. It's the, the simplest thing to do right now. Um, it also means that you have less of an issue with regulators, both you know industry regulators, um, with state, um, uh, federal, you know state, whatever. You you there is less of an issue if you are using AI to augment how you work versus using AI to make decisions. As mm -hmm. soon as we get into AI making decisions, we open up a can of worms that opens the people who are allowing the decisions to be made to scrutiny. Um, and and, I, and I'm seeing this, you know, with the states that I'm working in, we are, um, it is one of the first things that is debated and it's very quickly resolved by all those who, who are in state who are pretty much stipulating that they want a human in the loop um, mm -hmm. on, on any on any deployment. Uh, it's a key aspect of any assessment that happens when risk is being assessed. Um, if we think about generative AI specifically, that all, all, gen <laughs> all content created 
from generative AI tools uh, has to be assessed and reviewed um, before any of it can be used in any part of any process. It's basically some of the stuff that is coming out um, of our kind of rules, policies, uh, uses policies, et cetera. Um, which I think is a right thing to do. Uh, you know, at, at, at the moment, this is a, a new technology, um, and I, I see its um, its use. And again, not the user cases, but its use and the value it brings in being something similar to something that really isn't that fancy. But if you think about optical character recognition (OCR), you think about intelligent document processing. It's nowhere near as cool as generative AI, but the but the premise of a twenty minute process in extracting information from a document that is reduced to two minutes of reviewing stuff that has been extracted is worth eighteen minutes of value, right. but doesn't necessarily reduce the level of accuracy of a person doing it. Now that's not to say that a person is ever one hundred percent accurate; they're not. But we like to think of ourselves as yeah. being more accurate than many machines. Um, so the, the the value in OCR, intelligent document processing, those type of technologies is not necessarily straight through processing of 100% of everything. It is the significant reduction of effort across everything while still maintaining a human set of eyes, either one set of eyes or two set of eyes yeah. to ensure that there is a level of accuracy. Gen AI right now, I see exactly the same. Let's be, um, let's take the heavy lifting out of any process we want to complete, but let's still put our eyes on any form of output and ensure that I, as the person reviewing it, I'm happy with what it's saying. So much so that if it's wrong, if it's indifferent, uh, if it's biased, if it's anything, then it's on me, not the model, because right. yes. I'm the person that reviewed it, and I put an, an, an me using Gen AI, and then submitting something using Gen AI um, is is and should be on me because I'm the person who's used the technology, not necessarily on the model. And these are the types of conversations and discussions that are not necessarily quick, um, and they're not necessarily easy to write down in policy and procedure. Um, but they are, there's a lot of examples of where lots of clever people over a number of different years in a number of different places have all crafted things that are broadly along these lines. Uh, and so, you know, there is a solid foundation for anybody who, you know, has an ambition to write these type of things. Um, and it's just all about, about research and, and making sure that you are able to, um, Understand what it is you want to do. What do you want to stand for? What are your principles? You know, how risk averse do you want to be? And clearly, if you're in state government, the last thing you want to be is risky. Um, many of them want to be um, followers, not leaders. And again, you can you can you don't necessarily have to be. Um, and, and and most state governments have never been leaders in most things. If you think about technology and adoption and all of those things, so there's there's, there's a lot of uh, safety first um, things. And the key thing that I'm getting out of all of my conversations is we are not ready 
to have any form of AI make a decision for us. Recommendations, okay. Decisions, nada. Yeah, and, and I think that. Sorry, I think Wayne, that's 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 the right approach, at least in the early years, where you want to trust but verify. And I think mm -hmm. uh, you phrase this correctly, which is responsibility still falls on the individual, the people. And so now all of a sudden you're regulating uh, the use of that tool by a human, right? So how is a human using that tool to ultimately come to to, to the decision? But the the responsibility is on the person still, right? If they mm -hmm. if they misuse the tool, um, if they if they basically don't provide that human review of, of what the, the tool has, has uh, helped generate, uh, then the responsibility of that failure is on that person. Um, and the way I describe it, and, and maybe American football is now, now uh, well known to you because you've been in Texas long enough, is uh, basically AI can get you down to the, the you know, five yard line or the one yard line. But ultimately the person that rubber stamps the decision, let's say if it's underwriting decision, is still the loan officer, right? Yeah. And it may be that for some, AI is only able to get it to the 50 yard line for others who might be able to get to the one yard line. So there's different degrees of automation as well, depending on the complexity of the, the work. So there is still mm -hmm. a great um, opportunity for people in the roles that they're in today to add tremendous value. It just means that they, instead of starting from scratch, they get to start with something that is more pre-populated um, mm -hmm. in the, in the workflow that, that they're managing. Right. And I think that is a, um, surprisingly, it's a thing that many people welcome, right? Like a lot of the loan officers and claims adjusters, they welcome that because it's taking the grunt work off of their plate and they could do, they get to do the more interesting uh, work, which is human reasoning, uh, providing judgment on, 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 you know, with enough context, uh, on a decision that needs to get made. It's things that are actually, frankly, more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I think we've always spoke about this, you know, automation should be removing the stuff that is the least part, the least enjoyable part of your business. Um, you know, a, a part of your, your, uh, your role. I mean, I, I do laugh sometimes because I guess it depends at what point and how you're feeling. I remember as, um, and I should probably shouldn't be admitting this, but you know, as a, as a, you know, 18, 19 year old in the workplace, believe me, I wanted to do boring grunt work that didn't require much thought on a Saturday morning after I'd been to the pub the night before. But, you know, aside from that, most of the time, people are wanting to do the things that are interesting, you know, that interest them, right? You don't go to, you know, to college for four or five years to copy and paste, right? To look at disparate systems, to work with archaic technologies, right? There's a specific thing that you do. Um, and if we can use technology to, to do everything aside from that, then, you know, there's definitely good things that, that, that can happen. Um, so, yeah, the, the whole world of co-pilot, autonomous agents, assistants, all of this, I think, you know, in, in a few years, and you, the, the good news is you mentioned over the next few years, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have to worry about whether or not we're using Gen AI in the next quarter, right? It's going to be around, okay? Yeah. Not going anywhere, um, I mentioned before that there's a lot of people talking about it, but there's not a great deal of value being created. You know, we're going to, we're going to be figuring this stuff out, i.e. how it can be used, where it can be used and how best to create the most value for at least the next five years. In fact, sure. I started RPA in 2000 and, uh, it was, it was late 2010. We're in nearly in 2024. There are organizations who are scratching the surface, even on that basic technology. So 
Jenny I is going to be here for the next 10, 15 years. And there'll be still some organizations in a, in the decade, in a decade that are only just starting to get used to it. So we're yep. right at the very, you know, to use your analogy, we've literally just had a punt. Okay. We're now back on our own 10 yard line. You know, there's a lot of runway before uh, some organizations will be scoring touchdowns. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And and I think um, you know, what, what would be really interesting is to do a couple of rapid fire questions because I think this is such a meaningful conversation. Um, and I think it's particularly meaningful for our audience where there are a lot of you know, founders and operators of businesses and they're looking to figure out how to use AI, right? And, and they're going through the same uh, process you're, you're uh, discussing, which is technology is new. How do you get value? Where do you start? Uh, to start out with, what are some common mistakes that, that businesses make adopting, you know, it could have been RPA in the past, maybe it's Gen AI today, where um, you know, they make mistakes and they don't see any ROI or very little ROI. Um, maybe if you could speak to some of those mistakes. Um, okay. So again, this is not an English term, which is, uh, sorry, it's an English term. It's not an American term. I, I found this out because I've mentioned it on a few calls. Horses for courses. Okay. What it basically means is that Certain horses work well on in certain running conditions. Technology is exactly the same, right? Every organization is different. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're unique. They have um, different types of work. Those different types of work use different characteristics. Technology lends itself, different technologies lend themselves to doing work with those different characteristics, right? So, so, so in short, where I've seen organizations fail is they just think because this organization has done something that they should be able to do it. This organization has done something, so they should be able to do it. Look, di different organizations, even in the same industry, have different systems. They have different levels of maturity um, on, on their, their processes and their understanding of processes. Uh, and, and all of these things combine as to whether or not some of these technologies are able to, to create value. I worked in telco. We had, unbeknown to me, set ourselves up for absolute success with things like RPA. Why? Because we had basically outsourced so many transactional activities that all started with a structured form. We basically had people filling in these forms that people completed, structured input, known process. It was just absolute gold dust for automation. I thought that was how the world worked. That was, this was my first big enterprise that I worked in. I worked there for over 12 years. That's how I thought everybody was. Yeah. I then started going to other organizations. It's like, yeah, we know, you know, I'll give so-and-so a call and they'll do it manually or I'll do it manually. It's like the environment that you were in, the maturity of your process, the structured nature of all of these things are all going to negatively or positively affect technology usage. What we do know is in the right circumstance, just about every single one of these technologies will work absolute wonders. Mm -hmm. You need to be mindful, not every not your circumstance might not necessarily be the one where it works great. Uh, and that goes for anything, any form of technology. So your own internal environment has a positive or negative effect on the usefulness of everything. Yeah. So um, that, that's kind of my, the, the thing. Just because it worked elsewhere doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work everywhere. Um, and, and, and often it's not the technology's fault. It's your own internal environment, which has caused either a great ROI or a poor yeah. ROI. But Wayne, that sounds super scary because I imagine for a lot of businesses, they're trying to say, 
wow, what do I do, right? There's no common playbook. There's, you can't just steal some, some other person's playbook or another company's playbook to get that ROI that they need. So as they think about how to use AI, um, do they buy? Do they build? Do they get help? Um, like, how do they actually go uh, across this this journey? Because like they may be starting with a non-technical background, non-AI mm-hmm. background, and they're having to figure this out on their own. Yeah. So I think the I think you get help, and then you then your help tells you whether you need to buy or to build. Um, personally, I you know my, my I, I talk a good game now. My my background is operations, right? I start, I start with a process mindset and operational background, and I just like to solve problems. And it just so happens that I solve operational problems using technology. So over the years, I've built up a repertoire of technology types uh, against a, a problem set. So it's very doable to know how and where AI can add value um, to your organization without being a, you know, an, an AI uh, specialist yourself. Um, but I think you do need help. You do need, you know, most organizations either have a very mature, maybe it's a data science and analytics capability, but just because you're really great with your data doesn't necessarily mean that you're automatically going to be really great in automation. And the way I look at AI is two things. I think about AI from an automation perspective, you know, how can we make work better, faster, cheaper, using automation technologies that are infused with AI. And then you have the kind of other side of, of AI, which is more like data science. You know, how can, we, how can we make better decisions? How can we predict things in the future? How can we maybe operate in a different manner and inform the business about how they could drive revenue, increase margin, cut costs, et cetera. But you're using data there, whereas over here you are, in theory, working with process. And so I do see, you know, the world of AI in these in these two separate buckets, and you can be brilliant at one, uh, or, or or neither. Um, and so, you know, I think getting help and understanding what your own limitations are is probably a really good place. Uh, and I would suggest if you don't have the internal capabilities, then why would you not buy? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I see this all the time. Well, you know, we prefer to build it. Okay, how successful have you been at building things? Okay, not everybody can be an Amazon, right? They, they decide that they're gonna build many things internally and then they'll productize it and sell it. Great, not everyone's an Amazon. In fact, I would suggest that 99% of us are not an Amazon. Um, but you have clever people like yourself who build products in a, in, in a way that make it easy to consume uh, in in areas of significant interest for people, like why would you try and replicate that yourself, especially if you have no good history of being able to do that across multiple other things? So get help, probably buy. And if you get to a point where you think you're experts, maybe then you build, but why would you build up front and likely fall into the same chasms of you know problems that you will have done multiple times throughout the years as, as, and other organizations, right? You've already made mistakes. You've already got war wounds. Yeah. Like learn from from those, don't repeat them and, and buy would be my, especially in current technologies, right? Because most organizations will not know what they don't know. So leverage people like you uh, and, and multimodal and, and others to, to create you know, what it is now 
get value sooner, um, and I would say de-risk and also reduce the the actual internal knowledge and expertise that you need to be successful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it comes down to knowing which lane to swim in. Right. You're, if you're ex business and you've been very good, that's your core competency. You cannot take AI lightly. It's not something that's easy. And I realize that for many people, it may look easy when they first come to it because they see ChatGPT, they see OpenAI has a ChatGPT API, and you're, they think, well, you know, if all you need is software engineers that can take that API and make magic happen. And then what happens typically is that they realize there's a lot more to it, right? And so it takes long cycles. They don't see the value that they need. There is a learning curve. And it is, of course, very valuable for that internal team to develop that knowledge. But sometimes what happens is that by buying, which is, again, is right decision for some companies and maybe build for the others, but ones that buy um, end up learning a lot about the space, right? So it helps de-risk the opportunity. They get ROI faster. It's frankly cheaper in most cases because you're paying for, for just getting that task done versus having to go and build an a army of, of talent that can do the different things uh, in the ML space, which is very complex beyond just developing the model in order to get that ROI. And then if ultimately you realize that there are so many things that you need to do and you, you want to build, make that a core competency of your business, then you could go and, and also build alongside the people that are helping kind of serve you uh, from that initial buy decision, right? So you could go and transition even to build. But I think it's very, very daunting to build from day one, unless that's really part of your, the DNA of the company, right? And I think mm-hmm. I think that's exactly the type of thing that, that we come across. I'm sure you come across many, many times. Um, this is incredible, Wayne. Um, I really appreciate your time um, being on this podcast. I'm super excited to chat with you in a year or so from now and see, you know, what's changed in the Gen AI space, what you hear clients talking about, um, you know, what problems that they're facing at that juncture. And I imagine the technology is going to be more mature. People are, are, will have more ROI at that juncture, but there'll be net new problems uh, to, to, to face. Where can people find more about you personally or about ISG? Um, I'm, um, uh, I, I love being on social. So LinkedIn is probably the place to, uh, to catch up with me. I'm always sharing news, views, asking questions. That's probably um, the, the, the number one place. Uh, likewise, um, the ISG website would probably be the place to go. Um, but if anyone's got any queries, questions, I mean, feel free to, to reach out to me personally. And I'm, uh, I'm always willing to, again, another English phrase. I know you guys would know, chew the fat. And do you know what that means? And I did this on a podcast the other day, basically in the olden days, you used to get old, like fatty meat. And so it used to take a long time to chew. And so people would have conversations while they were chewing the fat. Uh, and basically it's informal, fun, friendly about topics of interest. Um, so chew the fat is something that I, uh, I love to do. Uh, and if anyone's interested in chewing the fat with me on Gen AI, automation, AI, whatever, uh, then yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best place. So it's, uh, I, I think my profile would be Wayne Butterfield and you, you can't miss me. I actually have a, a, Gen AI, a, a, gen, a generative AI uh, created headshot now. Um, so uh, yeah, <laughs> if, that, if that's another pointer of, uh, of why it would be me and not somebody else. Well, Wayne, it's been a pleasure having you uh, on the podcast. I'm hoping that the listeners of this podcast, especially the ones that are thinking about how to even figure out how to build or buy in this space and they need a, need a hand um, kind of making that, that decision and, and, and kind of go through that journey, that they will turn to to you and ISG. Uh, but thank you for being on the show. Um, really look forward to, to picking up this conversation with you in a year or so from now. And until then, um, I wish you the best.
Thank you for having me. Been absolutely great um, chewing the fat with your anchor, and I, I look forward to uh, to speaking some more. Sounds great. I'll see you. Good. Bye. Thank you.